Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. 610 Media acknowledges the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded, the Gubby Gubby people, and we pay our respects to elders past, present and future. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. quick disclaimer before we start tear it down is a podcast about all things mental health therefore it may contain coarse language adult themes and subject matter that may be distressing to some listeners such as suicide self-harm and references to drug and alcohol abuse please listen at your own discretion if you yourself are struggling you can reach out to lifeline on 131114 g'day and welcome back to tear it down Tearing the stigma down, one story at a time. I'm Jamie Poltz, and today I'm joined by not one, but two guests, Lizzie Hirschberger and Molly Maeve. Lizzie was raised Amish, something that you don't hear a lot about. And Lizzie was subjected to some serious sexual abuse in her younger years in the Amish community. And she teamed up with Molly Maeve to write a book called Behind Blue Curtains, a true crime memoir of an Amish woman's survival, escape, and pursuit of justice. It's really a fascinating, sad story that I encourage everybody to read. And if you're anything like me, you probably don't know a great deal about the Amish community or lifestyle. So I learned a lot from this conversation. Molly is an investigative journalist, trauma-informed writer and a survivor activist. Molly has her own experience with abuse and grooming and post-traumatic stress. Molly has now made it a mission to empower and help other survivors. That's enough for me though. I'll let Lizzie and Molly tell the story. Along with the normal content warnings you heard at the top of this episode, please also be advised, this episode contains talk of sexual abuse and rape of a minor. Discretion is strongly advised. With that being said, welcome to the show, Lizzie and Molly. Oh, thank you for joining us. And whereabouts in the world are you guys? Well, I'm in Los Angeles right now, but I'm moving back to the east. Um, And I think Lizzie's in Minnesota. Yes, I yes, Lizzie is in um, Minnesota. I have um, yeah, the, the the real Midwest, <laughs> right <laughs> right in the tri-state. Um, I have a couple miles to Iowa, and I'm right at the border of Wisconsin. So, um, right in the um, yeah, the Midwest. And so Molly and yourself teamed up to write the, your book, uh, which is called Behind Blue Curtains. Um, how did that come about? Well, we had a mutual friend uh, who was raised Swartz and Struber Amish. And she, I, Lizzie had gone to her first asking for some editorial help with a short memoir about what it's like to grow up Amish. And we were, I think our friend was juggling a lot of projects. So she 
asked if I was interested and I talked with Lizzie and that's how it began. All right. So what is it like to grow up Amish, Lizzie? And by the way, I recommend everybody to read that book. Um, I've got a copy of it. It's fantastic. It's very informing because I myself had very little idea of what Amish actually is. I mean, you see things on TV, but I didn't really understand it. So, and you are from one of the most strict sects, is that correct? Correct, Jamie. Yes. Thank you. Yes, I am. They, uh, and the Sports and Trooper Amish, they really pride themselves in being like the original, like um, a lot of, there's a lot of different kinds of Amish, but they all tend to be like a break off of them. And they tend to have, um, well, all of them have more modern conveniences. So to explain what it was like growing up Amish, I mean, there, there was a lot of good points. Um especially through this COVID um, period where um, some people were paranoid, you know, you couldn't get milk or bread or certain things. And they said, well, I grew up milking a cow or baking bread or providing, you know, uh, having a garden and and things like that. And I think um, there's just so many things that were good about it. The, uh, but on the flip side, you were so sheltered and so, um, um, so far from from what the real world I think is is like that um, you have um, a lot of disadvantages and one of the biggest ones is is the language um, so the language barrier is is my first language um, is Pennsylvania Dutch or we call it um, um, Dutch and it is an unwritten language um, there. Um, there's a misconception of that. And the reason I say that is because our Bibles that we had growing up were in a high German that was even a different language from what we spoke. So then when we were in church on Sundays, the preachers were preaching out of a Bible that was even a foreign language, even to us. Like, yes, I learned it when I went to school, a, a very limited part of it. And I can read a little bit of it, but yet not very much. And then I also learned how to speak English. So I really have three languages. And my first one is the Pennsylvania Dutch. So I think that's probably one of the biggest things that's the misconception of when you hear about Amish, I think you get that image of these wholesome, um, wonderful people that sell um, wonderful furniture or, uh, you know, items at the uh, local farmer's market or something like that, um, or quilts or something like that. But if people just go back and think about it, it is tends to be always the men that they interact with. The women are the ones that are very, very um, quiet. If you meet them somewhere, they're always looking down. And if somebody asks a question, it, um, most of the time the men will answer. And they tend, the men tend to have more of a language. Um, their vocabulary is bigger than the women is, that the women are. And um, it's just a very, it's just a very different, I think, um, um, way of life than what the Amish want people to, you know, they want you to just see them as these wholesome, wonderful people um, that live off the land. And um, they did that a lot years ago, but um, unfortunately with times changing, they don't live off of the land as much as they used to, but yet the women are still not out in public. Hi, um, thanks for having us. The ones out in public. So no doubt it's shaped how you are now, right? Like mm-hmm. that experiences and and there's certainly not much affection. One thing I got from your book when you when you read your um, mem or your mum's diary and it said you know there was no emotion there and, and you, it validated the feeling that you were never wanted 
which is heartbreaking. And just reading through, you know, all your experience as a child, there's just no, there's just no love or compassion or. So what what what's the reason behind that? What do you think that's about? Um, the, what I understand is that um, they they believe that you should never be proud of your children. So therefore, and then they also believe big time in that um, um, spare. Um, what is it? Spare the rod? No. Sp- um, what is it? Spoil the child? You, you shouldn't like. You should never spoil a child. It's about um, breaking their will at, when they're a very young age, and then they will follow what everybody else, you know, the elders and the parents and everybody tells them to do. And it's a very unfortunate thing because, especially when you were, I was a very strong-willed um, child. I, I I had you know things I wanted to do, and it was always crushed. I mean, you you just, they don't want you to have your own ideas and your own things that you want to do. They want you to just follow and do not ask questions. I mean, that is the biggest thing. You don't ask questions. You don't ask why. Um, and many of us that are parents realize your kids go through a period of, you know, they ask why for everything, you know, why does, you know, the sun come up? Why does it go down? You know, all these different questions, but they don't want you to question anything. They just want you to follow. And I think, um, it's especially sad um, in kids that really need that um, physical touch. You know, some kids really need physical touch. They really don't believe in that. It's very, very sad what they believe in their children. You know, it is um, um, babies need to learn immediately, you know, how to do um, like self-soothing and things like that. They just want to make sure that a child does not get spoiled if you hold a child too much it gets spoiled so it's just it's a very unfortunate ingrained thing um many of the things they try to back up from bible things but it's so it's so um how do you say they only pick certain things out and then they go with that like let's say honor thy father and mother that's all i remember ever hearing you honor thy father and mother well there's much more to that verse than that um, so, so that's kind of what I go back to answering that question. That's what they, they tend to say everything comes from the Bible, but it's just such a limited version and their Bible that they read is in high German. Very, very hard to understand. Very hard to understand. So what kind of, uh, luxuries did you have in your house? So what, what were you allowed and what were you not allowed? Um, luxuries, my goodness. Um, a luxury was probably going to town. Um, if if our parents um, send us to town to, let's say, take a jug of, and go get gas or something, and they give us an extra dollar to get a to get a candy bar, that really was probably a luxury. Um, the other thing was if um, every other Sunday they would allow us sometimes to go to like our cousin's house or a friend's house, and we could just play you know, play. We didn't, on Sundays tended to be, that was the rest day. And we had church every other Sunday, but on the Sunday, we didn't have church. If we got to go somewhere or if we had um, friends that came and we could just go out and play, you know, we could play baseball or um, um, whatever, hide and seek or something like that. That really was, that's what I would say, a luxury as a child. I remember that. We didn't have like a kettle or a stovetop, electric stovetop or a car. Nothing like that. Or a bathroom? No. Yeah. <laughs> or a shower. Yeah. Your bucket. <laughs> or toilet paper. Yeah, and the toilet paper. When I read that, I thought, what? Yeah, 
So when you say you had to have catalogs, you kept catalogs in the outhouse. What are you talking about? What's a catalog? Like a magazine? Um, remember, like years ago, Sears used to have a catalog, like yeah. a Sears catalog. Like, okay, so that was like that slippery paper. paper. Yeah. So because toilet paper was that was too expensive. And, and that catalog tended to come to your mailbox for free. So reused. Wow. Okay. Uh, so tell us about your parents, because the feeling I got about them from the book might not be the whole truth. Tell us about your parents. Well, um, I'll start with my dad. Um, my dad was probably, um, you know, for the most part, um, he was wonderful. Um, he, I believe from, from um, before I was born, he knew that I was not his biological child. Um, but he never once said that. He never um, told anybody that I was not his daughter or his biological daughter. Um, he actually, I feel like, like almost prided himself in telling people that I was his daughter um, because as, as years went on and, and I left the Amish and um, I got married and I lived close by home, he loved my husband and, and um, they did lots of things together. And he would always, always tell people, you know, that, you know, I was his daughter, you know, and what we did and, you know, my kids, he talked about my kids. He loved my kids. Um, my kids played baseball and, you know, just lots of things that he really liked a softball, lots of sports. It wasn't just people, but, um, he, he, he just, you know, he never once, um, yeah, uh, you know, I, I don't even know. It was only that one incident that I talked about in the book that I actually asked him, you know, about trying to get uh, information out of him on who, you know, my biological father could be. And I don't believe for I don't believe he knew. I, I don't believe that he ever thought about it. I think he just blocked it out of his mind and accepted me. Um, so when he. Um, and, and I always had that in my mind that I would never look for my biological father as long as he was living. Um, it was not that it was, um, uh, I, you know, I guess I can't explain what it really was, but it was something that I just felt like I would not do um, in case it would make him feel um, maybe less adequate as a as a father or whatever. And for the most part, like I said, it, he was a very good dad. He did make the couple incidents that I talked about in the book. And it was extremely hard for me to put that in the book. And me and Molly talked about it multiple times about putting it in, especially because I had siblings. But I, the reason it was important to put it in the book, I think, is that um, we wanted to show that he was human too and that he struggled. And um, also that I had the ability at that time to tell him no, you know, that this is no, I'm not going to do this. No, I'm not going to ask what you do, um, what you want me to do. And I think that, um, um, you know, we, we didn't make it a big part of the book. You know, I tend to think that if we write another one, you know, I might talk about my dad a, a little bit more because he really was a big part. Um, and he's unfortunately, you know, passed away. Um, my kids, you know, they have, they're greatly influenced by my dad. Um, and then talking about my mom, my mom, it's, uh, she's a very, it was very difficult to write about her. And I will say there's so, so much more to write about her than what I did. I really did because she is still living. Um, um, and I, I try to have a, 
um, at least an open relationship with her. I did not want to say anything um, um, excessively like, um, you know, I was trying to be as nice as possible. Obviously, you know, I will say that she was hurt by some of the things that I wrote in the book. Um, But I will say on my mom's behalf, she I think she did the best she could. Um, and she suffered. She had a terrible, she had a terrible childhood. I, I tried to say that. I don't think I said it extensively enough where um, she was abused, uh, you know, um, and, and she's never accepted, like she's never come to the fact of saying I was abused. I was sexually abused. Her, my grandpa was a pedophile. Um, but so it's, I think the difference is trying to say is that I just chose to go a different route with my kids. And thankfully, um, they have a different outlook on life than what I did. But she did the best she could in the situation she was. Um, and, and she didn't want to get pregnant with me. I mean, that was not a plan, um, you know. And, um, yeah, so in the answer, it, the best she could. I think Molly would love to talk about her. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the impression I got was she didn't want to be Amish or she didn't want to be living there. I mean, she tried to, or she did escape or jump the fence, as they say. Mm -hmm. But is she still Amish now? She is not. She left. um, When my youngest brother was about 13, she left and um, she is not Amish. No. And, um, uh, but but it's very difficult if you leave the Amish when you're way later in life and um, you've kind of grown, you know, accustomed to all those things. Like it's really a mindset. And I feel that she has very difficult, lots of difficulties in um, getting out of that mindset of, of, of still doing things um, kind of the way the Amish did. She, you know, she drives a car, but she, you know, has that mindset of, of being limited. And do you still have family and friends living in the Amish lifestyle? I do. I do. That is one of the um, one of the probably best things that has come out of the book is that there were some people that I was friends with with before, but maybe hadn't talked to in years. But they read the book and they reached out, and you know they'll call me or I'll go out to their house, and um, they're wonderful. They're wonderful. Yes, most of the people will never. How do I say? If I say see them in public, they will say something to me. But it's not like somebody that will. They can't. Like I can come to their house. It's so complicated. I can go to their Amish house. I can buy from them. I can buy from their greenhouses or their farmers' um, products or whatever it is they have. But they cannot come to my house. That's crossing the line. So it's complicated. But yet they can call me on the phone and say, "Hey, do you want to come out for supper?" And I'll go out. You know, so it, it, but it's, yes, I do have, I do still have friends out there. Um, some of them are really, yeah, really good friends. I really consider them good friends. And reading your book, the parts where you start to introduce some abuse that was happening is very, very sad. Uh, especially were you seven or eight years old when your uncle Abe, you're in the barn and he said, Oh, I've got candy in my pocket. Yeah. Well, the problem with that is I think I, we tend to kind of put it in at, at when I was six or seven. But unfortunately, I I believe I was an infant when it started. And the reason I say this, because I never have a memory of not being sexually abused. 
in the book, we said there's one uncle. There was two, but we had to combine them. But the problem is where I say that I don't remember what never being abused is because the first memory that I have of being abused, I went home and got my pacifier. So I know that I was young. Do you know what I mean? Like, I know I was extremely young. And then it was this bribery and this ongoing thing that happened. And I will say that I don't think in the book we we said it clearly enough. Most of my uh, relatives that were horrible to me, my uncles and my aunt, um, they knew that I wasn't their their biological um, relative. I I believe that was a like this unwritten... um, Thing that they knew. And I think that they maybe weren't even conscious that they were doing as much as they were because they did a whole, I mean, they did horrible things to me, unlike to my sister or some of my siblings that were, that were um, biological. Um, so, and that's why we, we talked about it when I was an infant getting dropped off because I have that from my mom's diary. And just from everything that I know and everything that I know that has happened to some of my um, cousins and things like that, I have absolutely, um, you know, I don't have proof, but I, I, I believe that they were um, doing things to me when I was an infant toddler. And then, but eventually, you know, it stopped, it stopped. But when my cousins died in that fire, it, it stopped. Um, whether it was just, um, you know, things, you know, both of them got married at that time and moved away. And I really think it was just, it was a very, it was a very tragic thing. And um, nobody got counseling, you know, none of my cousins, nobody got counseling. It was just this horrible, tragic, you know, and everybody had this um, weight over them that it was because somebody's actions caused them to, you know, the cousins to die, which is just this weird thing. But that, that that's just a twisted way of, of religion, um, you know, what they believe in. Yeah, maybe maybe for the listeners who haven't read the book, um, go and read it, but maybe explain that a bit more, what happened with those fires. So when I was nine, um, it was, um, I was in, in school and I was in, in um uh, the school was right by my house and then by my cousin's house. And it was a very, um, you know, typical day we were in school and all of a sudden we, you know, like seen fire trucks going and we were like, you know, I, and I only had one cousin in my class and um, a neighbor. And cause this is a one room schoolhouse with first through eighth grade. So there's about 30 students and t- t- and, you know, just remember how sheltered we lived. Um, we didn't see a fire truck going by. We didn't see an ambulance. We didn't hear sirens. So when something like that, we were like, well, what's going on? You know, I was like, at first I thought, well, maybe my dad had a fire at the sawmill because the sawmill was right next door. There's all these things that are raising through your mind. And we had this teacher that was extremely strict. And she just, instead of like, you know, letting us go out or trying to figure out what was going on, she closed all the curtains and was like, you know, everybody be quiet. You know, this is, you know, whatever. Um, It was her way of handling it. It was not appropriate, obviously. But so we had all these different things. So then eventually somebody comes to the door and knocks, you know, and we're, what's going on? And, but it took me until about the third person that came, which um, then she released 
um, my cousins to go home. And I know that when my cousins went home, I knew it was bad. Like you don't, somebody doesn't come to the door and say your cousins can leave and everybody still stays in the room. And, um, and we couldn't go out for recess. We couldn't go out for, you know, our normal activities like we usually did. And, um, so eventually me and my sister get home after school, we race home, you know, to my mom. And then my mom tries to explain to us, um, you know, that our two young, two, four and five-year-old, um, cousins died in this tragic fire. And it was just like, we just couldn't understand. Like there was, there had never been any death in the family. Never. Like, I don't remember. I don't remember a fire ever. Like, it was just like this, like, we just couldn't get it through our minds. Like what happened? And you're trying to figure it all out. And then to top it off, you know, my mother doesn't tell us this that night, my mom goes to the hospital and the next morning we get up, my mom's not there. We're what's going on. So then finally, later in the day, somebody comes to this. Oh, by the way, you have a little brother now. So my mom had been in all of this. My mom was nine months pregnant and delivered my youngest brother the next day. And it's just, there's just so many things that like your little mind just can't handle like what's all going on. And, you know, and what, you know, we don't understand. We were extremely close with our cousins. That was our closest cousins next door. We, um, my little cousins, I talked about the names. They had me and my one of my cousins shared our grandmother's name. And it was just all these different things that it just was, it was a tragic, tragic thing. And, um, but, but in all this, um, we believed somehow somebody's actions in the family caused um, God to take these little girls, which and I tried to explain, you know, then I couldn't understand why God would take this two little girls. And then he brings me a brother. You know what? It, it just was just a complicated thing. But after that, none of the abuse happened. My, my uncles got married. Um, and I, you know, whether it was just, you know, it's just the way things went at that time. Um, but um, I think what would have really helped the family hindsight now, um, if we would have had a counselor come to school, um and talk to we should have talked to all us kids especially my cousins my cousins have suffered that whole family has suffered tremendously um through all these years and um hindsight i will say my teacher has said that she doesn't believe she made the right choice that day she made the the best choice she knew at the time um to not let anybody go home but um it's just something that i'll always remember um fires are just like this traumatic like it's just a severe thing that I remember um, because I only associated with um, losing two little cousins. Of course. And back to your abuse, it, it didn't stop with just that incident in the uh, barn. It escalated from there. And, and how frequent was it happening? With my uncles, it's hard to say for sure. Like, you know, because I'll have... Um, Sometimes even now I'll have like flashbacks of something that I had forgotten. Um, but I would say, you know, if I had to say it was at, it was at least I, I'll, I'll be lightly and say it was happening weekly. I don't, I would say it was more than that, but, um, and the reason I know that's because almost on a daily basis, me or my sister went down to my uh, grandparents to help with the the chores meaning milking cows by hand morning or night and that alternated um you know eventually 
um, you know, sometimes my sister would do it for a couple days in a row and then I would go. So it was sporadic. Um, but it, it was just one of those things that, um, unfortunately, um, I'm very concerned, um, about this uncle because he is the one that I made a note in the book because he is still, um, he is still living in this area and he is a father and the grandpa. Um, I do believe somebody will come forward um, because the things he did, it wasn't just to me, you know, it was um, to my sister too. And you don't, um, somebody, the degree that he went to, there is no way that he was able to stop um, when he got married and he eventually had children and daughters and um, grandchildren um, that he just stopped because the Amish church, whatever, tried to rehabilitate him. That he wasn't. I mean, he is a pedophile that eventually, I believe, will be caught. And I and I can't wait for that day. And there was more abuse though with other people as well in your in your church community. Uh, do you want to go into that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure, I'll just touch on that a little bit. And I think I'll just talk about that. I think for your um, viewers, as far as like the mental health things, um, you know, there's studies out there, you know, once you've become um, like, um, you know, a prey of somebody, um, you become an easy target for somebody else. And I believe that's what it was for for me, um, is that, you know, I was abused from such an early age. And then later on, I was an easy target for somebody that it was a relative of my parents. Um, It was somebody that I grew up with. Um, And I I think it was just easy for... um, for this, this family that I went to work for to just kind of take me in. And, um, I thought I was the wife's friend and, um, the husband's friend and, and little did I know that, you know, the husband, it was all grooming. It was, it's just part of this big six month thing. Um, and I was 14 and he was 28 and he was married and had four children already. And that's a, the unfortunate thing is it's, it's, it's a, community where this is so easy for them to be able to do this because we don't have outside help. You know, I had never had somebody, um, you know, um, take me to therapy or um, any facility to get help with what happened to me as a child, much less, you know, losing my cousins and things like that. And then here I am 14, I'm, I'm going through adolescence and um, all these changes. And I had absolutely no um sex education i mean they don't tell you anything at all and um and at that time also it was a period where i really uh sort of realizing that i wasn't um biologically um my dad's child and i think that he and he knew that um and he used that against me so then he took it as um i was this um you know, just, just this teenager that he could, um, use and, um, turn it where he was my only friend and his, you know, um, what his wife knew, you know, I don't know extensively, but, um, she definitely allowed things that, um, was very inappropriate. And, um, I think it was, um, um, yeah, it, it definitely didn't happen overnight, but eventually we got to this point where, um, yeah, I, I um, ended up getting um, raped. I was uh, immediately 
in a position where I, I blamed myself. I um, felt like I didn't, if I would have left the barn earlier, I would have maybe avoided it. Like I maybe did something that night and there was, there had been, you know, I was given alcohol. So then I was like, well, if I wouldn't have taken that alcohol, you know, there's all these different things in play. And um, so I blamed myself immediately. And it, it, it really took me um, writing the book where Molly tried to help me like process, like this is a normal thing that, that people blame themselves. But I believe with that, that's why I was quiet for almost 28 years because you feel like it's your fault. And then the community flipped this and um, he went and confessed to the church that he had an inappropriate contact with me um, and that, that it was an extramarital affair. Well, we know that you can't have an extramarital affair with a 14 year old. Um, but this is the, the, this is what the church believed. And they turned it like I was the, um, the, the uh, promiscuous temptress mm-hmm, 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 that, that um, yeah, brought this on. Um, Molly, do you have anything to say on that? <laughs> I've done a lot of talk. Yeah, Molly, you've um, obviously had your own issues with being groomed in the past and, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. How was it for you writing this book and going through this ordeal with with Lizzie? Well, it was interesting timing because I was coming forward about my own grooming situation when I was 15. And at the time when I came forward, I really felt dismissed because it didn't end in a rape, which was the big word that you know, everyone wanted to hear, uh, you know, we're progressing as far as sexual assault education goes, but I didn't think that people were ready to talk about grooming and I was ready to talk about it. So when Lizzie and I got together and she started telling me about, uh, this employer and, um, everything that went on, it really reminded me of, what it was like to be a young teenager and not have any physical affection in your life and really not feel validated. And, and already I had, I was already vulnerable because I had already been abused and all those factors really made me a target. And that's something that I can understand today. And that's empowering because just as predators can see vulnerability in victims once a victim becomes a survivor, I think they can also sense the predator. So it goes both ways. And I did suffer com- from complex PTSD for many years, um, which is often a result of sexual assault in childhood. And I think it's just a natural conversation uh, that to come from grooming and sexual assault. Um, And I really do feel like I was able to talk about grooming through helping Lizzie write those scenes. Um, It's very powerful to have somebody touch your hair or your shoulder or ask how you're doing or give you a compliment. Um, And that's why it's called rape, even if it feels consensual at the time. The show will return after this quick break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And that brings me to another point where you were very young, Lizzie, and your mom said, uh, we'll send you to an English person's house, which is a friend, and English person just is not non, non-Amish. Yeah. <laughs> and you got those same vibes from the, from the father who came into your room and said, you know, if you, if you want to come into my room, if you wake up, mm-hmm. and, you, and you had that realisation that it doesn't matter where I am, mm-hmm. these men seem to do it, which is, yeah, terrible. It's yeah. It's brutal. Yeah, it is. And it's it's strange for me to look back at that incident. You know, at the time I didn't realize it, but I knew, like, I knew there was something um, because I pulled my, you know, dresser in front of the door, you know, you know, and I just knew there was something, you know, wrong. And I say now that's one of the things that, um, you know, I wish I wouldn't have suffered all that I did, but yet um, as a parent now, my intuition um, on some of those things is so much higher than some of the other parents that I need because I can pick out if, if there's a pedophile around, you know what I mean? Because I can, I can just spot there. Um, and it's a very, you know, no words often are ever spoken, but I can just tell and they can tell um, because I'm so, um, protective of my kids and um they're they're just um kids are so vulnerable and um unfortunately t- you know especially with the times um the things internet and things but um yeah so that's one of the things I try to use is that I really try to listen to 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 my um instincts and um even if it's somebody sometimes I've had trouble with, you know, it'll be somebody that, you know, everybody in the community trusts and, you know, they're a coach or something, you know, or a youth pastor or something, you know, and I'm like, there's something, there's something not right. I just don't feel right. I don't know what it is. I can't explain. So I just, I'm like, nope, I watch my kids and I just do what I can to protect my kids. And I don't want my kids to ever have to go through what I did. Did you ever have to get uh, medical intervention or counseling, anything like that for what happened to you? Like, do you suffer mentally? I do. I, I did not take any counseling until, um, goodness, probably around the time when it was, when I was going to go report it, then I started taking counseling, um, and had a wonderful, wonderful therapist that was like, a, um, I'd say like a mother figure to me. And, you know, she was just wonderful. She helped me figure things out. Um, go through things. Um, I still have multiple, like, I I call them like mother figures, like that I can go to with any kind of issues and things like that. And, um, I wish I would have done it earlier, but, but I didn't. Um, and as far as suffering from, um, you know, um, mental health things. So I definitely PTSD uh, or complex, even, um, PTSD. And that's just, you know, from suffering that much trauma from a childhood or from a child, you know, my childhood, it was just um, very difficult. Um, but in general, I think I'm able to handle it. Um, 
pretty well. And, and for the most part, I think what helps me is that I'm a, um, I do lots of volunteer, but I especially volunteer with victim services. So when I go in and help, um, somebody who's, who's went through some similar things, I just, I come out of those, um, tragic incidences, um, of feeling much more empowered and much more, um, um, healed. Like, I feel like I've done more for myself than I probably did for them. I, I just feel like I've, I've, I've overcome so much. Was that the same for you, Molly, when you were involved in this book? Um, yeah. You mean as far as becoming empowered and helping others? Yeah. Um, was it healing for you? Oh, absolutely. So I really had to process, you know, a lot in my past through writing this and also in helping Lizzie with the victim impact statement, which became part of the book. You know, by that time, I understood Lizzie's voice a little more and her experience. And I was able to take her words and really channel my own frustration that I will never see justice. I, I just don't think that I will in my case, but I was able to channel so much of what happened and it was comforting to know that I'm not alone. And I'm, I've known for a long time that I'm not alone, but when you really hear somebody, somebody else with a completely different background telling aspects of your own story, it's very powerful. Um, you know, I, I think just the fact that we were able to do it together and the, the impact that it's had on the survivors who contact us and the actions that are being taken today to prevent this kind of abuse in the future. It's, it's a powerful testament to uh, surviving and telling your story and connecting with other survivors and walking that path, which can be incredibly difficult, but it's worth it in the end. Did you find any parts of the, the book particularly shocking for you like um, obviously the abuse was horrible but parts that you didn't know about Amish or stuff you weren't expecting yes all, all of it because I didn't know anything about the Amish and I spent a lot of time questioning Lizzie is this normal is this normal in your world because it's not normal in the world I'm familiar with like there were a lot of conversations where I just didn't understand. I couldn't understand. I was Googling, you know, I was using the thesaurus, you know, whatever I could to understand. Um, and a lot of it was shocking. And that's why I was, it was so fascinating to work on the book with her because it was always interesting. And so you're both true crime fans. We were talking pre-interview that you both like true crime. Is it triggering for you? to watch anything or hear anything that has sexual abuse or grooming? I think so. You know, especially when you hear about young children and, and there are two aspects to that, you know, I get triggered and I forget what we're talking about and my symptoms pop up. Um, on the other hand, you, it, you get stronger as you continue to recover and advocate for others. And it becomes empowering to be able to, make and hold space for another survivor and be able to listen to a story maybe no one's ever been able to listen to and 
you know, especially to help them find their voice. Like all of that is very empowering. So you've got lots of good feedback from the book so far? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. A lot, lot more good feedback than we, I, I was trying to prepare myself for a lot more backlash, I think, at which was probably good. Um, but it's just amazing sometimes how many um, letters I've gotten, like, from Amish themselves. Um, there is a bookstore that in the middle of Amish country, one of the biggest, uh, sells uh, hundreds of hundreds, hundreds of books. And they are um, the people that would not buy books off of Amazon or somewhere like that. And those are like, I feel like those are the letters I get. And so they're amazing. I mean, it is, yeah, I, I've gotten very, very, very few um, harsh letters saying that I make the Amish look bad. For the most part, it's all compliments of thank you for speaking out and thank you for um, telling your story. And what other books can you recommend? That's one of the biggest ones. I was like, how did I become a book recommendation person? But yeah, so um, so yeah, it's been wonderful. Um, I'm definitely glad that um, we took as much time as we did with the book. Um, it took four and a half years. I mean, it's a long process. It didn't just happen overnight. And the healing that came with it and everything, it was a, it was a wonderful, a wonderful process. And you didn't tell anybody about the abuse until you decided to report it, right? And you went and told your sister? I had to, I, I said in the, I think I said, you know, when, when I was taking premarital counseling at a Mennonite church, um, and I was going to get married to my husband, um, I told the pastor a little bit and the response was horribly, you know, it, it was on, um, how you must forgive and, um, how bad they must feel. And so it was here and there, a couple people like that, that I said it, but it was never anybody that said, Hey, I really think you should go to the police and make a report. Nobody ever said that until um, it came to the point of me uh, being a school board member. And I realized this case in the community where I had talked to, to the investigator on that case. And I realized um, how important it was to make a report. Even if nothing ever happened, you could have a report made and it would sit there. And so if somebody else came forward, that would still be sitting there. And that's what I expected. I never expected him to be able to get charged um, after all that time, but he could get charged because he was my employer. But unfortunately, you know, my uncle could not, did not get charged because of the statute of limitations. So. And how were you received by the police when you reported it? Uh, so I did a little bit of investigating and I figured out who was like the, the um, sex crime investigator, because in, in most police departments, there is somebody kind of um, specially trained for that. So when I went in and um, he said that he had been the the, um, the investigator for the um, uh, for the community I lived in for over 20 years. And I was the first person to ever come forward um, with with something um, like that. But I will say his response was very, um, it was a very good response. He um, took it serious. Um, he talked to the DA and he did everything by the book. Um, so I, you know, have to give, you know, credit to him doing his job. And um, 
when they went out to try to, to talk to uh, my abuser, you know, he was very invasive. I mean, it took months for them to be able to track him down, but they stayed on it. They, you know, they could have said, Hey, we can't find them or what, what have you, but they eventually um, sent a deputy out at night and found him and said, Hey, you have to make an appointment to sit down. And he, he eventually did. Um, but, but, you know, justice takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. And you just kind of have to like sit back and be like, yeah, <laughs> just wait. So what, where is he now? Your abuser? Um, well, <laughs> my abuser got 45 days in jail. And he got 10 years of probation, um, which is, um, yeah, it, not good it is, that's the laws that were, yeah, and no, it is nothing. It's, it's, um, it's just terrible, but they had to charge him for, for, um, what was in place, um, in 1989 when the crime happened, which I think is something that, that, um, laws need to be changed. And I hope to be, um, helping with that, but yes, he still lives. Um, he, he only lives about 12 miles from my house. I still live in the community. Um, he walks around freely every day. Um, he is an Amish deacon um, at Grandpa. And yeah, to me, he um, the reports I get is um, he is, yeah. If he doesn't, um, how would I say? He doesn't seem to have been affected by having to serve 45 days in jail and being on probation. Um, thankfully, he is still on probation. And um, if he, you know, violates it, hopefully um, he will um, go to prison. So he's still an Amish deacon and living that right now. Do you see him ever? I have not personally seen him since the day that he got sentenced and he got taken um, to jail. Um, but uh, I have a a lot of, I mean, it's a small community, but I have a lot of friends and people report to me. They'll be like, oh, we've seen him here. We've seen him there. Um, but I have not personally, and I um, hope that I don't have to run into him. Um, but at first, I will say when he got charged, it seemed like he was not in public very much. He was very rarely, you know, people, you know, I didn't hear of anything. But I, I can tell it's been a little bit over two years, I think, since he got sentenced. And it seems like he's out in public a lot more. Um, people will say, well, we've seen him here. We've seen him there. So we'll see how, how it goes with, um, with him still being on, on probation. And uh, I, I just remember the DA saying that when we had sat down is that the reason she didn't want to give him more than 45 days um, jail time so that if he violates probation, he will get about a little bit over a year, I think, in prison. So therefore it'd be a little bit more, you know what I mean? You know, and at the time it didn't make sense, but now I'm starting to be, you know, kind of see that if he does violate, um, at least he'll get a little bit of time in prison, um, away from his family. Um, so, um, again, you know, we don't know, but I tend to feel like he is definitely out, um, living um like nothing happened you know nothing you know you know and you know no matter what even though he's been sentenced i still have to live with it it's never going to go away you know it, it's it's always there so how was preparing and reading the victim impact statement for both of you you know you're both involved but how how was that was that empowering it really was to tell Ma. Molly, I, I was like, I don't know what that, I don't even know what an impact statement, you know, I didn't know what it was, but I tried to, you know, I, I got some sentences written down and then 
um, Molly flew out to Minnesota and we sat together and um, we wrote it. And the interesting part about it is, is, is in the book that um, I wrote it on the um, presumption that my sister's going to read it. And the reason I felt like if I let my sister read it, that I could say things that I was not able to say, um, like maybe a bit, little bit more, um, you know, in a more aggressive manner or think things like that. But, you know, literally, you know, minutes before we went into the courtroom, um, my sister said, no, she said, no, I don't think I'm going to read it. She said, I'll stand by you and you can read it. And I am so glad that I did. It was, it was so empowering. And he had to sit there and his family that sat there and the community members, Amish and non-Amish that were there supporting him had to sit there and listen. And um, some of them snickered. Um, and, um, but I think one of the most, um, revealing parts to me about it, and I won't forget it, is that the, the judge got emotional two times responding to the, 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 the letter. And, and he, he, he just said, you know, um, you know, you know, how, um, how hard it is to, to listen to these statements and how he felt like, um, because obviously he was trying to say that, you know, just turning it around that it was on, you know, me to blame and things like that and saying how the judge said how it was just how wrong it was. And, you know, I challenge anybody, you can go to the courthouse and get the court papers on it and, and read what the judge said because he responded very well. Did you get a reaction from your abuser? He said, I have nothing to say. And, and how'd you go with it all, Molly? Well, I flew to Minnesota where I think Lizzie and I met for the first time face to face. And writing the impact statement was sort of comical, I remember, because it was just sort of a comedy of errors at the very last minute, like trying to get it down. And then we were like trying to print it out and rush into the courtroom at the very last second. And, and the rest of it was very powerful because... One, it was powerful that Lizzie decided to read her own statement and seeing how far she'd come from who she was when I first met her and was just not able to speak the way she is today. And then there were women who had driven 17 hours through the night wow. to be there to make sure that she didn't have to be alone. And we all sat there holding on to each other and really crying as Lizzie read this. It was really emotional for everyone. <laughs> I could get emotional just thinking about it because we were all just so different from different backgrounds. And here we were just hearing our story spoken in a courtroom, you know, it, the details aren't important. What they, What's important is the heart of the matter and that we've all been dismissed and shunned and blamed and gaslighted in some way all of our lives. And now we have power in numbers. Um, you know, despite our differences, we can all come together and fight this one thing. And it's working. Mm -hmm. It's still working. We've we've done a lot of work since that day. Good on you guys for both doing that and, and stepping forward and being that voice of hope. And do you want to talk about what you are doing today? Lizzie, no. go ahead. But, so, yes. Yeah, so I am a co-founder of Voices of Hope. 
Um, that is an organization I founded with my friend um, Dina Schrock. And both of us grew up Schwartz and Trooper Amish. And we hold conferences um, a couple times a year. And it is only for women. Um, and is basically helping um, um, survivors come together and share their stories. And we have like small group sessions where they can share their story. And we have some larger speakers and we have um, just um, basically uh, somebody um, asked me if it was kind of like an AA meeting. <laughs> and I said, that's a, that's a good way to look at it. You, you find um, friends there that you can connect with and they can walk with you because some of these women have never shared their story before. Um, some of them are in the process of going through the legal system. Some are, um, you know, in just dismay, you know, they just don't know where to turn to. Um, so it's just different things. So that is one of the things I do. And then I volunteer locally um, with my victim services weekly and I on call and I go on site to be, meet victims. And then I'm also a um, interpreter for the Amish language. And I'm on a couple hospital um, uh, call lines so that if they need an interpreter for the Amish language, they will call me in. So uh, lots of lot hospitals have, um, you know, Spanish interpreters or what have you. Um, so I am on there for the Amish language um, interpreter. So there's enough of an Amish presence there to, to have that. So it's, there's quite a population. It is a much larger population than what people uh, think. And they tend to be in like, um, I think people used to think they were maybe in Pennsylvania more, in Ohio, but in the area I'm at, you know, there's there's around 100 families and these families tend to have large, um, you know, 10, 12, 15 kids, you know, that's a lot. And their um, education is so limited. So their language is so limited. Um, so yeah, so yes, and we're right by um, the Mayo Clinic. Um, so that's a world-known um, hospital. Um, that's one of them. So it's it's a very um, yeah, it's a very interesting place to be. They they're very very well staffed and have trauma um, nurses and things like that. So it's a very good place. Um, so yeah, so that's what I do um, on the side of yeah. Just every day I do some mentoring on the side, and I have a. Um, usually one or two girls that I'm mentoring, um, you know, along the way. So to go back in time, you were, was it 17 or 18 when you jumped the fence? Or there was twice, there was twice when you jumped the fence or left the Amish community and then you married, you married your Amish sweetheart. Is that correct? <laughs> I don't know. Well, I, I knew him from the Amish church, but yes. So I knew him from the community and yes, I left. Up when I was 17, that second time, the first time, you know, it's hard to say that I chumped the fence because it really was because my mom wanted me out of the house. It's really because there was so much pressure and things. Um, but um, I did, uh, I did return to the Amish actually when I was um, 18 for a couple months and um, started joining the Amish church. So that is the start for the next book um, that I did not write about. But yes, um, and it is just, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's very, most of the time when, when people jump the fence, they tend to leave the area and leave the community. That is one thing that is different for me is that I'm still by the Amish community and I interact with some of the Amish people, you know, weekly, definitely on a weekly basis. Okay. And your husband, uh, what's his affiliation with the Amish church now? Is he completely out of it? 
or still in it? Yes. Mm-hmm. No, he, yeah, he left, he left the Amish before I did. Um, but he probably has, he probably communicates with them even more than I do. Um, he, um, has his own trucking business and then he deals with horses and that is what the Amish do. So they often call him almost daily. It seems like, um, they want a horse hauled or they would like to, you know, um, uh, you know, sometimes it's an animal or a cow or something picked up and hauled. And, um, so, so yes, he, he deals with them and, um, he grew up in Ohio, but moved to Minnesota when he was 14. Um, so yeah, so he, yeah, he, he loves it here. That's why we're here. I think it was up to me. I would not live here by the community, but, <laughs> but, um, yeah, that's where we cho- chose to raise our family and we, our youngest um, child is still in high school. And tragedy struck again for you as a mother um, when you lost your boy, Dustin. I mean, my heart goes out to you guys uh, for dealing with that. Yeah, I often don't. Yeah, we, we didn't talk about this in the book much because it happened after the book was done. But um, Dustin was a um, special needs child and he was... Um, born with um, the cord around his neck. So he always had problems. It was called cerebral palsy. And I took care of him and he suffered a lot of seizures when he was young. And then he didn't get any for a while until he's in high in his teens and um, early twenties. And then he tragically passed away with with the grandma seizure. So that's terrible. And yeah, I'm I'm sorry to hear about that, but I'm sure you've got a great support network behind you and to get to get through that people say well you aren't given more than what you can handle well you know sometimes you wonder <laughs> how are you both now with your mental health journey and how do you cope or live with whatever happened to you well i consider myself in recovery from complex ptsd and depression. That doesn't mean that I'm cured. It means that I've come a long way in managing my symptoms. I make healthier choices. Um, I've had a lot of therapy. Um, I talk with other survivors and and there's a lot to do to, I think, get through complex PTSD. It's not easy, but I think we're becoming more trauma-informed as a society. So as a trauma-informed writer, I am very interested in educating the community, the world, actually, about alternatives to recovering, um, you know, to the standard mental health industry options that we have. Um, And just becoming an empowered survivor. this whole process has also led me to work with plain survivors. Um, and we're very interested in helping them uh, report sexual assault and abuse um, and educate themselves in their communities about these issues and to just know that they're not alone. That's really our goal. Um, so this, this process is, has, it's been an honor and a privilege to work with Lizzie, um, and her whole family. And, um, I'm just looking forward to, uh, you know, working together more to end sexual assault. It's great work that you are doing to help survivors. So thanks for that. And how about yourself, Lizzie? 
you know, it's, it's, um, it's definitely better um, than it was. And going through the, the process of reporting it and, you know, having him sentence and, you know, it's been a little bit of time now and it's uh, definitely, definitely getting better, but, but you still have those um, times when you hear from another victim or I'm um, somewhere with somebody and they'll say something and, and, you know, you're overwhelmed um, later. It's usually not in front of people. I am, you know, privately um, overwhelmed with, you know, this, um, you know, sadness of, of, you know, this is what you went through. But overall, I think that um, I feel um, really stable. And I've told um, somebody recently, it's just, i I feel better than I have probably, you know, in, in about, you know, a long time. You feel like, a, I, I feel like, how do you explain? I feel like there's a monkey off of my back since I reported it. And I don't have to like, it was like you were hiding this secret that, you know, that you didn't, nobody talked about and you didn't say anything. And now you don't have to hide it anymore. It's out there, and especially with the book. I mean, my goodness. Yeah. People would just go read it. Um, and it was a um, empowerment empowering thing to to write the book um definitely lots of consideration went into it because of my children and um you know you know they're so young and um you know i want to uh, protect their identity and and things like that hmm. do you harbor any negative for uh, negative feelings towards the amish or is it just those certain people just certain people, just certain people. There's many, many good Amish people. I have, um, I actually have a brother-in-law who's a bishop in the Amish church and I grew up neighbors with him and, um, um, he's married to my sister-in-law and he's, he's a wonderful guy. I mean, he, there's nothing like, um, you know, I don't feel like he's a predator or, um, you know, some of the things he does. Yes. I, I don't agree with, but in general, I think he's a very, um, a very good bishop um, when there's sometimes there's some bishops that um, yeah, just do awful things and, and the way they rule is just, you know, unrealistic. Um, but, but there's a very good Amish people. And I really appreciate you bringing that up is because I don't want people to think that they're, you know, all the Amish are bad or the, all the Amish men are predators. They are not. Um, there's just, unfortunately many of them um, that are so easy Um going um under the radar i feel like in that community because um of the of the children being so limited with their education and resources yeah because you're only allowed to be educated until grade eight yeah that's it's yeah it's so limited and in the amish um schoolhouse that i grew up at we couldn't have any history so that is like you don't know what um you know, you're so limited, like the civil war and, you know, all those different things. And the reason I've learned, because I have had kids that graduated from high school and um, especially my son was so interested in um, history. He loved history and he would tell me all these things. And I was like, I've never heard of it. That's incredible. And what would you say to people listening who relate to your story and and haven't shared with anybody what's happened to them in in that regard in abuse what's your advice my advice to somebody that hasn't uh, opened up and shared with anybody um about the um abuse that they've suffered is even if you think it's maybe something minor and you're not sure you know if um you know how major it is or if you think it was nothing just 
go seek out somebody professional and just share with them and let them let you know if how um, how serious it was. And sometimes when you just start opening up, it um, opens up doors just to healing that you you know and and sometimes you you um, can just recover from things that you. You thought you were you were blaming yourself, you know, and you were um, did something wrong, but just go seek out professional help. There's so many professionals that are out there that can help you, and it doesn't mean that you have to. Not all cases need to be reported, but if you just go out and um, talk to somebody, because if you don't talk to somebody, it will not go away. I, I know that tends to be what people think. You can just like stuff it down and it'll go away. No, it will always just, you know, come back up or something will trigger you. And especially if you have children, um, it is very important that you go seek some help before you have um, kids that get into that age bracket of when you were abused, because it's very hard then um, to be able to parent. And sometimes um, you just, you're so unaware of, of um, um, you know, what you suffered um, and then if it, plus if you don't do anything, especially in the Amish, they grew up, it's a generational thing that's been going on. So I wanted to stop it. I said, you know, if I don't stop it, who will, you know, you, I, you know, at one point I would just want to quit, you know, this is, this is it. I'm not going to, you know, sit around and keep hiding this, this family secret that nobody wants us to talk about. Um, so Please, I encourage, you know, victims, even like I said, even if they think it's sometimes very small, because I've had them um, victims say like, um, well, it only happened one time or um, I let him do it or, um, you know, just go in and share with somebody, a, a, you know, a counselor, a therapist, somebody that can just help you and um, you will feel so much better um, after you go through that. Um, process of healing. Excellent advice. And from somebody who's been there and done that and written a book about it. So I strongly recommend everyone go and read that book. I'll include the show notes in the show notes. I'll include that in the show notes. There you go. Um, finally, before we leave, where does the title come from behind Blue Curtains? What's the, what's the significance there? Oh, thank you for asking. It was a, Initially, it was life behind Blue Curtains blue curtains but because um you know through um publishing and things that they suggested cutting it down and i really like it being just um behind blue curtains but the significance of it is that the sports and trooper amish that i come from there the curtains all to be have to be a specific blue it cannot be too light of blue color or too dark or too thick of fabric it's like this whole ridiculous um uh ordeal and it's just curtains but the point was to make is that everything in the life we grew up in has rules everything from what we eat what we wear what we have on our windows everything there is rules about everything so i wanted to just point it out plus it to me it showed you know we don't like to think you know that um, from from driving through an Amish community or are stopping at their house, maybe or buying something at their furniture stores, that they know what happens. You really don't know what happens behind behind those blue curtains. Well, it's been an absolute honor speaking to you, both Lizzie and Molly, and thank you for joining me because I know it's your birthday. So happy birthday, and <laughs> thanks for giving us the time today. 
And I really hope everyone got a, something out of that like I did. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks a lot for having us. It was a pleasure. I'll keep listening to your podcast. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Yeah, you can find me at mollymave.com. Ka-ching. I'll include that in the show notes for everybody. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Lizzie and Molly. If you would like to buy their book, it's called Behind Blue Curtains. So I'll post the link in the show notes. You can find Molly at www.mollymave.com. And if this episode has brought up any issues for you, please seek help. You can reach Lifeline at 131114. Tear it down as a... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Extend Media Production. A special thanks to Audio Technica and Zoom for supporting me throughout my podcast journey. Our cover art was done by my talented sister-in-law, Courtney Woods. The music for this show was produced by Bubba Beats. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and also follow us on Apple Podcasts. Yes, it used to be subscribe and I've been saying it for years, but now it's follow. Why fix something if it's not broken? Anyway, now you have to click the little plus icon at the top right hand side of the Apple Podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at 610 Media Group for Instagram and at 610 Media on Facebook. And if you want to get in touch, you can head to 610mediagroup.com or send an email to info at 610mediagroup.com. That's S-I-X and the number 10. Cheers.